0: Morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to Bible class here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere. It's very good to have all of you here with us this morning. And to those of us who are listening on KFUO Radio, welcome to the Bible class. As I've said in weeks before, this Bible class is a little bit different than other Bible classes because we're not spending our time focusing on one particular book of the Bible or a series of texts from the Bible. but We're actually looking at the history of the earliest Christians. My name is Jerry Bode. I am a member here at St. Paul's, and I teach in the history department at Concordia Seminary here in St. Louis. And so I teach history there. And so we're teaching a class that looks at the history of the early Christian church from the end of the book of Acts until about the beginning of the 4th century, around the time that the emperor Constantine became a Christian himself and made Christianity a legal religion within the Roman Empire. So we're kind of looking at that the first three and a half, four centuries of the church's history. We're doing a series this summer in which we have been looking at different aspects of the life of the early church and early church Christians. We've been looking at uh, what they believed and how they practiced. Last time we looked at Gnosticism for a while. Gnosticism was the effort by some uh, at the time of the early church to import ideas from Greek and Roman and Eastern religion and philosophy to bring that into Christianity. They were trying to improve it in some ways they thought Uh, But it caused all kinds of problems. Questions about what is it that Christians really believe? What is the teaching of Jesus? And how do we live as Christians? Last time we also looked at the efforts to refute Gnosticism. So we talked a little bit about Irenaeus, who was one of the early church theologians, who wrote a book entitled Against Heresies, in which he went to great lengths to refute Gnosticism. And in that work, he argues that the teachings of Christianity are based on the words of Jesus himself, and that those are found in the scriptures. And so Christians base what they believe and teach on the scriptures. They're not making this stuff up, but they actually believe what the scriptures teach. Irenaeus also argued that the teaching of the the Christian church had been passed down from Jesus to the disciples to the apostles generation after generation and that the teaching of the church of his day was faithful to the scriptures we also looked a little bit last time at the formulation of the new testament canon the collection of authoritative books of the scriptures we looked at the uh, development of the structure of the church with pastors and bishops and so forth and we began to talk a little bit about the early christian creeds and that's what we're going to be starting with this morning. Today we're going to look at creeds and early creedal statements in the early church. We're going to talk about something called the rule of faith in Latin, the regula fide, which was kind of like a creed, but also a little bit like a, a little homily, a little sermon. And then we're going to talk begin to talk a little bit about some of the early Christian monks who were trying to live a life that they believed that scripture Taught them to lead and that Jesus himself had taught them to lead. So we're going to start with the creeds. We get the English word creed from the Latin verb credo, which means I believe. And many of the creeds that we have: the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, those creeds actually begin in Latin with the word credo, I believe. And so we call them creeds. When we think of creeds, we usually think of those three creeds creeds apostles creeds nicene creed and athanasian creed we'll talk a little bit more about those later on but we find statements of faith or creeds in the bible itself i want to give you one example from deuteronomy chapter six here o israel the lord our god the lord is one that is a statement of faith from the old testament god commands his people to confess that the Lord is their God and that he is one. You may remember that that passage in Deuteronomy goes on to read you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's an example of a statement of faith or a confession of faith from the Old Testament. We also have in the New Testament really the the command or the the example of Confession, but it's also the confession of Jesus Christ. This is from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. A very famous passage uh, written by the Apostle Paul about Jesus Christ. This is what Paul writes. And you can hear hear here the call to confess Christ. He writes, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have here from Paul a description of what Christians do. They confess Jesus Christ as Lord, as Savior. We have that example of that kind of, in a sense, that call to confess we have other examples from the new testament that i want to show you very briefly these are kind of classic texts that are confessions of faith in jesus from matthew chapter 16 you may remember here jesus asks his disciples who do people say that i am the disciples reply but jesus says to them but who do you say that i am and simon peter replied you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That confession of Simon Peter is a beautiful confession of faith. Jesus asks him, who do you say that I am? And Peter replies faithfully. Another example from John chapter 11. You remember this particular text. This is from uh, the, the chapter 11 in John where Lazarus, Jesus' friend Lazarus, has died. And Jesus goes to uh, see his sisters, Mary and Martha, four days after Lazarus's death. And he comes and, and Martha runs out to meet him. And she says to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to Martha in John chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, shall never die. Do you believe this? And martha said to him yes lord i believe that you are the christ the son of god who is coming into the world again a very beautiful confession of faith that we find from martha another one from first corinthians chapter six or first corinthians chapter eight verse six where paul writes For us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Let me give you one example here, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You notice how these begin to sound a little bit like creeds. Or you can see little pieces of the text here that will end up in our creeds. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, For I delivered, handed down, to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Again, Paul confesses faith in Jesus Christ and gives himself as an example. We find these early Christian creeds as simple concise statements of faith usually in the new testament they're focused on the person of jesus what these early christians are doing in the new testament what early christians will do in the period right after the new testament will confess christ they will confess their faith in a sense what they are doing is they are our same saying what the scripture says the scriptures say jesus is lord jesus is the christ and the response of christians is to say yes jesus is lord jesus is the christ Uh, the, the 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 confession in the new testament and in the early church is really a marvelous thing christians are stating their belief in not simply the facts of who jesus is or who god is for them in christ but it is also a, a statement of trust in God it's not simply an, an intellectual assent or an intellectual acknowledgement the fact that Jesus is God or Jesus is the Messiah but it's also a, a statement of trust and faith that he is the Messiah for me that he is my Lord Martin Luther once said that God does not lie to us in his word God does not lie to us what God tells us is the truth and Christians believe that and they repeat back to God and to one another what God says to us in his word and that's the wonderful nature of a confession whether it be a confession of sins like we had in our worship service this morning or a confession of Christ or god the triune father son and holy spirit we had the apostles creed in our service today too we are same saying what god says to us in his word we're saying this back to god we're also saying it to one another as christians there's that horizontal and that vertical aspect of this i want to give you some examples of early uh, confessions of faith that we find in the new early church after the New Testament. What are Christians called to confess or Christians called to say? These are some of the very earliest confessions of faith. The first one is, Jesus is Lord. In Greek, kurios, Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Of course, we find this in the New Testament. Uh, but this means that Jesus is God. That he is the Yahweh, the Adonai of the Old Testament we have one example of of the statement jesus is lord as a confession of faith from 1 corinthians chapter 12 where paul says no one can say jesus is lord except by the holy spirit this is a, a faith that is worked by the spirit we have another example from romans chapter 10 verse 9 where paul says if with your mouth you confess Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Jesus is Lord is a confession of faith. But it's easy, and all of us would confess that today, we understand what that means. But in the New Testament context, in the first and second and third century context, when Christians would say, Jesus is Lord... They would confess that to God and to one another. It was actually kind of a provocative thing to say. And the reason for that is. That the Romans. In the Roman Empire. Had their own confession. Their own faith statement. And that confession was. Caesar is Lord. Curios Caesar. The Romans would say. Well. If caesar is lord according to the popular civic cult in the roman empire then you can imagine how christians are going to be treated when they say jesus is lord curios jesus the problem for christians is that Curios jesus jesus is lord leaves no room for caesar to be lord uh, that the confession of faith in christ is an exclusive one no one else is lord but but jesus that fact that christians are called to confess christ as lord and savior and no one else that fact is going to play an important role later on in the persecution of early christians who would refuse to acknowledge caesar as a divine being or caesar as lord the christians would refuse to offer sacrifices to the imperial cult and for that reason many of them were persecuted So the confession of faith seems easy enough. Jesus is Lord, but it is a very bold thing to confess. It's bold in the first and second century. It is bold to confess that today too, but that's what Christians are called to do. In uh, another example of an early confession of faith is the statement, Jesus is the Christ. Kurios Christos. Jesus is the Christ means that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one of God, the one promised of God from of old. This statement, Jesus is the Christ, is found in the New Testament also in many places. One example is in John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? In Mark chapter 8, verse 30, and also Matthew 16 and John 11, we have the statement that you are the Christ. Uh, Peter says that, and Martha says that you are the Christ. Now, these earliest statements of faith like this were first used in connection to the baptism of Christians into the Christian faith. So the earliest christians when they would baptize would make some kind of faith statement an oral confession of faith in in jesus as their savior and very quickly that confession of faith connected with baptism would become trinitarian it would confess not simply jesus as god but it would confess the triune god father son and holy spirit And after all, this makes sense. Jesus says, baptize in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And Christians did that. And people who were being baptized would then confess faith in that triune God. I have here on the screen an example of one of the very earliest confessions of faith that would take place at baptism. And I'm going to read this to you. uh, But you kind of have this, uh, this dialogue between the baptizer... The one doing the baptism and the baptizand, the one being baptized. And it goes like this. The baptizer asks the question, do you believe in God the Father? The one being baptized says, I believe, credo in Latin. Immersion in the water. So their water is poured over them or they're put down into the water after that statement of faith. Next, the baptizer asks, do you believe in God the Son? The one being baptized said, I believe. They're immersed in the water. And finally, the baptizer says, Do you believe in God the Holy Spirit? And the one being baptized says, I believe. And yet again, they are immersed in the water. Now, that's a very simple baptism service. Later on, this would be elaborated uh, in the baptismal service. And I want to give you one example of this. I don't have it on the screen for you to see because it's a little bit long. But. Here's an example from a Syrian text, which offers direction for baptism. It's like a handbook on, uh, so when you're baptizing someone, here's what you do and here's what you say and here's what they say. And notice how this one is a little bit different than the, the one that you see on the screen, the one I just read. This is the way the text reads. Let the one being baptized stand naked in the water, a deacon, should step down in like manner into the water with the one being baptized. And thus, when the one being baptized has stepped down into the water, the baptizer should place his hand upon him and say, Do you believe in God the Father Almighty? And the one being baptized will reply, I believe. And at once, let him baptize him for the first time. Then the baptizer should say, Do you believe also in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who came from the Father, who is with the Father from the beginning, who was born from the Virgin Mary through the Holy Spirit, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died, rose again on the third day, resurrected from the dead, ascended into heaven, sits at the right hand of the Father and will come again to judge the living and the dead. And when he answers, I believe let him baptize him a second time. And then the baptizer should say, do you believe also in the Holy Spirit in the Holy Christian Church? And the man who is being baptized should say, I believe. And then let him baptize him a third time. There are many examples like this in the early church. Directions, uh, often with slightly different confessional statements, but basically all doing the same thing. You notice what you have there in that latter example that i gave you is wording that sounds very much like we have in our apostles creed and that's really where our where creeds like the apostles creed come from they come from the baptismal practice when people were baptized the creed would be used we do this today don't we we'll do it at the at the 1045 service uh we'll baptize a baby and we will the congregation because the baby can't speak the question Will be asked by the pastor do you believe in god the father and the entire congregation will respond on behalf of the baby and the same with belief in god the son and god the holy spirit we say the creed is part of the baptism i want to point out something in regard to this here this is a little bit of a side comment but i i think it's worth noting here where whether we're doing this where if we say the apostles creed as part of a baptismal service Or We say it as part of our regular worship service like we did this morning. We are confessing that statement of faith, that creed, not simply because it is an old practice in the church, not simply because Christians have been doing this for 2,000 years. We don't don't say that creed simply because it's old. Uh, We don't say it simply because uh, ever since that time, christians have always done this in the church it's not simply just tradition but we actually confess the creed in our worship services today we do this every sunday we do this because we actually believe today we actually confess today faith in god the father son and holy spirit it's not uh, uh, some kind of remnant from an old distant past, but it is a, a, an act of living faith in Jesus that we confess to God, to one another, every week. I think that's helpful to remember that a little bit. As you can imagine, these, uh, these early Christian creeds became very important in the life of the church as statements of faith. I want to mention just a couple of things about the, th- the three creeds that we are most familiar with, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasian Creed. As you know, we confess the Apostles' Creed uh, on Sundays here at St. Paul's when we do not have communion. We say the Apostles' Creed on Sundays when we do have communion. We uh, use the Nicene Creed. And every year on Trinity Sunday, the Sunday after Pentecost, we as an entire congregation confess the Athanasian Creed. It's always a memorable day. Uh, in, in our worship services, um, we always remember that, but I want to mention that the apostles creed is is a creed that really comes out of baptismal practice. It may date from as early as the the latter part of the second century and probably was established in the in the wording that we know it today by the end of the fourth century, so it 's a very old creed, but it went through a long period of of development and his uh, has been used basically as we have it ever since the fourth century. The Nicene Creed is a creed that was the the first form of it came out of the Council of Nicaea, one of the early church councils in the year 325. That council was called to deal with false teaching in the church, and I hope we're going to get to talk about that next week. Uh, the, The final version of the creed as we know it today came out after the council of constantinople in the year 381 the creed that we really use in our worship services, the right name for it is the niceno constantinopolitan creed but that's kind of a big mouthful for us to, to, to announce uh, so we call it simply the nicene creed fewer syllables the athanasian creed uh, which is named after, after Athanasius, was probably not written by him, but it was written according to the teaching. He was one of the, the chief theologians at the Council of Nicaea in 325. The Athanasian Creed was, probably dates from the 5th century to the 6th century. It's a little bit of a later one. And again, it was uh, written by the early church and confessed to keep the teaching of the Christian church, in particular the teaching of the doctrine of Christ, to keep it faithful with the scriptures. So these early creeds really become tools or ways of delineating true teaching from false teaching these confessions these creeds serve the role of not simply saying this is what we believe the scriptures say it's a statement of faith but it's also a statement of 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 what we we don't believe we believe and teach and confess this and not that you see that especially in the athanasian creed where it says very clearly that this is what we believe in it, and it's not that. So these creeds were, were summaries uh, of the apostolic faith, the early church faith. And they were considered to be expositions or summary of what the scriptures teach about God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, in a sense, they're condensations of what we believe about God in a very simple form. But we see that they also help to shape the external and internal practices of the church, and they play an important role uh, even to the present day. I want to pause here and ask if anybody has any questions about the creeds. Please. When was the Syrian uh, Baptismal Handbook written? Uh, I don't remember off the top of my head. I can give you a reference if you want to look it up. Uh, but I think it's probably a little bit later. I want to say third or fourth century, maybe. Talk to me afterwards and I'll give you the reference. Yeah. Please. Right. Yeah, the, Athanasian, the question was about the Athanasian Creed and the and the, the doctrinal controversies surrounding it. The the problem that the church faced at the time of the Council of Nicaea in 325 was was one that was around for a long time, and it has to do with with the nature of of Christ as both God and man, and a confession of that. And there were some that were saying something about Jesus that we the rest of the church thought was not actually consistent with what the scriptures taught. Uh, Some people thought that he was just, he was really a God that just kind of looked like a man. He wasn't really a man. And other people said, well, he's really a man, but people said he was God. And so the church had to do all kinds of things to keep that uh, faithful to the scriptures. And that's why we have those two creeds. I'll I'll give you some more specific examples about that next week. But we're dealing with with a couple of, of pretty significant heresies in the early church, that those creeds were, were to address. Yeah. We, we don't, although we do have those, I suppose those heresies are probably still around today. They're not necessarily the same kind of a threat to us today as they were in the early church, but they're still an issue. And we still confess the same thing about Christ today. Anything else about the creeds? Let's back Yeah. The uh, the renunciation of, of the devil, for example, uh, I don't know when that comes into, into the practice of the church. It was something, of course, that was revived in the, in the 16th century with the Lutheran Reformation. They brought it back in. There was some controversy about that at the time, but it, it made it through. There were some people who had an issue with it in the 16th century. But I'm sure that there is an, an ancient source for that, that um, and I don't remember where it comes from. I'm sorry. And it's part of our baptismal formula. It is part of our baptismal formula today, that's right. yes. Yeah Anything else? OK, I would like to go on to talk a little bit about what we call the rule of faith. Now, the, the rule of faith is something kind of similar to uh, a, a creedal statement in the early church. Uh, The the Latin word for this is is, uh, regula fide, but in English we call it the rule of faith. This was a a name that was given to this statement of faith by one of the early church theologians named Irenaeus, and we talked about him last time. Tertullian, another early church father, also talks about the rule of faith. The, The name was used to describe summary statements of the Christian faith. Uh, the, but they, they read a little bit more like a narrative, like a story, uh, the story of redemption. Uh, they were commonly used by the church in the second century. In some ways, they're, they're being formulated at the same times as the creeds. Uh, but these are, the rule of faith is certainly earlier than the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed. A regula or a rule here is a pattern, a model, an example And we find a a scriptural origin for the term in Galatians chapter six, uh, where Paul writes, as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. So the rule is kind of the way that we walk in, in our faith. In many cases, this rule of faith grew out of the baptismal service and the baptismal confession of faith. They were later on used also to defend The Christian tradition of the faith against false teachings, especially against the Gnostics. But unlike the creeds, the rules of faith tended to vary a little bit more in their wording. And they're not necessarily tied to the Trinity so much. They may be talking more uh, about other things that the scripture teaches. Uh, They would all claim to be faithful to the teaching of the scriptures. But there are many different variations of this uh, of this rule of faith when we go back to the first three centuries of the christian church even before the formulation of the biblical canon we find the rule of faith playing kind of a defining and authoritative role in the church it is fairly consistent in its content and its teaching but but how did the church define its teaching in a simple way how was it and how was this teaching authoritative well the rule of faith is really an effort by early Christians to tell the story of God to the world and they would often include the stories of creation the incarnation of Christ is Redemption and the consummation the, the final the end times uh, So the rule of faith would would describe the Christian story and the Christian view of the world in kind of a narrative way and at the same time It would provide a frame of reference for interpreting the scriptures in a sense it was saying this is how we understand the scriptures what they what they mean but it would also interpret the experience of the Christian faith and life in a sense it would kind of say this is when we talk about what it means to be a Christian this is what we say kind of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith I want to give you a couple of examples of what these are very short versions of the rule of faith sometimes they would be quite long uh, what i mean long is a, a maybe a, a page and a half or two pages in, in an american book today these are, are just paragraphs summaries that i want to give you examples of here's one from ignatius of antioch how he described the rule of faith ignatius was the bishop of, of antioch he was eventually martyred for his faith he wrote this rule of faith in the the year, about 107 A.D., in response to the Gnostic heretics, uh, and also to confess the true Christian faith. This is what he writes. Do not listen when anyone speaks to you something at variance with Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who was descended from the family of David, born of Mary, truly born both of God and of the Virgin and who truly took a body for the word became flesh and lived among us without sin who ate and drank truly who truly suffered persecution under Pontius Pilate who was truly crucified and died who also was truly raised from the dead after three days his father raising him up. And after having spent 40 days with the apostles, he was received up to the father and sits at his right hand, waiting until his enemies are put under his feet. Now that rule of faith is found in a letter that Ignatius wrote to his friend, trallianus Now you can see here, it's really kind of a story about who Jesus is. It's much like a creed. But it is a little bit different details are a little bit different notice his concern there He repeats the word truly a lot The Gnostics would say it wasn't true. No, no. He said no it is true He really did these things. He really did what the scriptures say about him Here is another example of a rule of faith as Irenaeus Described remember Irenaeus was the was the bishop in the city of lyon in southern france this one dates from uh, later on in the second or early third century, Irenaeus says, The whole church believes in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and the seas and all that is therein, and in one Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was made flesh for our salvation, and in the Holy Spirit, who through the prophets preached the dispensations and the comings. And the virgin birth and the passion and the rising from the dead and the assumption into heaven in his flesh of our beloved lord jesus christ and his coming from heaven in the glory of the father to raise up all flesh this rule irenaeus says is what pastors teach the people it's what they receive from the apostles from the disciples from jesus himself Now, these rules rules of faith would gradually over time kind of emerge as creeds. That's understandable. Much of what they're saying are kind of creed-like. But this process of movement from a a rule of faith into a creed involves several different things. For example, these were statements that were spoken by the mouth. People would say these, they would confess these together, little uh, confessional summaries. But they also recognize the need for some kind of standard teaching, some kind of standard summary for the church's teaching, especially when people are questioning or disputing what Christians were saying. And then you begin to see also that these things will come into baptismal practice, the catechetical instruction. When Christians were taught the basics of the Christian faith, they would often be taught a rule of faith, or later on they would be taught the creeds and taught to confess them so these rules of faith are really kind of like though the confessions of the christian faith but they really profess who god is and what he has done and they're kind of like little little tiny sermons about who god is and what he has done for us uh, as i said there are some of these examples that are very long and beautiful that are much like little sermons and they kind of grow into that it gives you a sense of what uh, what these perhaps sermons were like in the earliest church. Okay, that's a little bit of a discussion of the rule of faith. Does anybody have any questions about that? But you mentioned authoritative. Uh, is was it, did it begin again a teaching that we use these to interpret certain things in Scripture? I mean, was that the idea of interpretation? Yeah, the the idea of interpretation is is key you know you have this whole problem with with authority in the early church it's it's not a problem really until the gnostics come along and are claiming to have another authority which is outside the scriptures which no one else knows about Uh, but when when that kind of problem enters the scene then it becomes a question of authority for the early church and so you find for example the Uh, People like Irenaeus will emphasize the authority of the scriptures as the source of what Christians believe and teach. And he will emphasize the authority of the bishops as ones who have received that teaching from the apostles themselves. They're not making this stuff up. They're teaching what they were taught, and therefore we should listen to them. Uh, That was the argument that they'll make in the the first, second, third centuries about those bishops. Uh, But you also have things like the, the... rules of faith which is a standard it's like saying this is this is how we understand this this is what the Christian faith is and then creeds also which are more kind of articulations of of uh, faith in in the triune God uh, which are become kind of a different kind of a standard the rule of faith I would say is almost more like the 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 seed of, of preaching the seed of sermons the seed of that Christian message that will be told by the early church, but it is regarded as an authority over against anybody else who <clears throat> who wants to dispute it. Does that kind of make sense? Yeah. Anything else about the rules of faith? Some of them are, are really beautiful statements of faith. They're like these beautiful little sermons. I wish I had time to read you. They're kind of long, but they're they're beautiful things. Okay. I would like to go on now and talk about. Uh, this is a rather dramatic change in our in our discussion here, but I want to begin to talk a little bit about some of the early Christians, who were, uh, in some cases, were second, third, fourth generation Christians, who were reading the scriptures, trying to live according to the rule of faith, according to the creed. They were trying to live out their baptisms, if you will, live in. The baptismal life in Christ and who believed that it was they found it difficult to live their Christian life in the world and decided to find another way of living and we're gonna be talking about what, what is really early monasticism early monks maybe if I give you some examples it will help explain this a little bit one of the earliest monks was a man by the name of Anthony sometimes called Anthony of Egypt. And he was a, a man that was born around the year 250 A.D. When he was in his, in his, uh, le- maybe about 20 years old, he was living in Egypt, at a well-to-do family. His parents were Christians, and he had been raised a Christian. But one day he decided to go out and live in the desert by himself. His father was a well-to-do farmer. Anthony had a career all laid out for him if he he wanted. His parents wanted him to go to school. And uh, his parents really encouraged him to do this. But he wasn't interested in that. One day when he was at church, he had heard the words of Christ preached. The words of Christ from Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus says, Go, sell all you have give to the poor, and follow me. Well, Anthony took these words to heart. It was a, a command of Christ himself, who was addressed to Anthony. He's, got, he's talking to me here. And so he did this. At first, he Anthony went and kind of lived on the outskirts of town, away out of the house, away from things a little bit. But... It was too close and later on he moved further into the egyptian desert and he moved then further still out into the egyptian desert and became isolated he was a hermit which uh, means in desert dwelling a hermit is one who lives in the desert well people heard about him and every once in a while someone would come would come out to see him and uh, learn from him about how to live the Christian life out there. And eventually he attracted a number of followers. And as you can imagine, uh, you know, you're, you're out there trying to get away from it all. And people come, keep coming out to see you. Uh, finally, he decided he had to organize these folks. And he organized all these followers into a, a community of monks or hermits. Uh, they lived under a rule. He gave them some guidelines for living the Christian life. And that's how he spent his life. By the time of his death in the year 356, he was 105 years old. Uh, Nobody expected him to live that long out there. And he was living several weeks journey from the nearest town. That's how remote he was he had completely dropped out of civilization, so to speak, making a complete break with his environment. But this physical displacement, getting away from it all, was really, the, 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 for him, the necessary first step in living the kind of life that he believed that God had called him to lead. And there would be many people who would be influenced by this. Now, lest you think that, that Anthony just simply went out and lived in a cave, which is what they believed he did. Simply went out and lived in a cave in the in the desert. Uh, Anthony wrote. He wrote letters. He corresponded with people. He actually participated. He was a friend of Athanasius, uh, who was one of the important theologians at the Council of Nicaea. And Anthony was a theologian engaged in refuting. The heresy, uh, the false teaching that the church was uh, trying to fight against during that time. So he was very busy out there working and writing and so forth. He wasn't just living in a hole in the ground. Uh, but but he decided that the, the best way for him to live the Christian life and to serve Christ and one another was to live uh, by himself alone uh, out in in the desert. This is what we call asceticism. This is a term that's often used to describe this kind of of christian life it's a life of self-discipline a life of self-deprivation often living out by oneself without the the comforts or luxuries of of the life that other people are leading and in this way by living this kind of life of deprivation and discipline and meditation on the scriptures a life of prayer anthony kind of set an example for other monks who would follow after him The word monk comes in English from the Greek word manachos, which means alone or solitary. And the idea was you live a solitary life, dedicate your life to prayer, to following Christ, uh, living the kind of life that they believed he called people to live, and to live apart from the rest of the world. We actually know a lot about Anthony and his life because his friend Athanasius wrote a biography of him. Uh, and tells us all kinds of things about him, uh, and, and how he lived out there. But Anthony becomes kind of a symbol of of the, the, the Christian life for many people, uh, and it becomes an attractive life for a lot of people. He has people visit him. I have a picture on the screen here, uh, and you maybe can't see it very well but it's a later portrait from the 17th century, but it shows the cave where Anthony lives and he's there trying to pray, uh, but he's got behind him a whole crowd of people that have come to see him. Uh, people wanting advice, people wanting help. Uh, he, some people claimed he, would, he could heal them, so they've come to, to find him. He's even got a, a lady coming, bringing her daughter would you please marry my daughter you're such a nice young fellow well these were kind of regarded as temptations by anthony who's focused on other things he doesn't have time to deal with all this but this is one of the things that athanasius in his biography talks about you think it's easy living out in the desert by yourself well everybody wants to come and see you out there and so this is the struggle of of the early monks but like i said he set an example and others would follow and the, the, the way he lived his life, that kind of discipline and prayer and so forth, would be an example for many others to follow. I, I want to give you another example of a, a monk. This one's a little bit later, but I think it, it, uh, it's uh, kind of a dramatic example of, uh, of another person who's trying to live this kind of life of Christian discipline. This is a man by the name of Simeon Stylites, or sometimes Simeon Stylites. He's much later, really outside the bounds of our course. He lived from 390 to 459. He was from Syria. And he lived for 37 years on the top of a 50-foot pillar. Stylites means pillar sitting, or he was a pillar ascetic. There were a bunch of people who did this. He was the first, the trendsetter. He got his start as a regular style monk in Syria, and after a few years he felt the need to demonstrate publicly his dedication to Christ, his dedication to this monastic life. And so he started living on a pillar. Uh, at first the pillar was was kind of low, he just climb up there, uh, but gradually he made it taller, he felt the need to kind of get away from the, the, everyone, uh, so he made it. 50 feet tall. He was attempting to escape the world. I mean, there's something really kind of symbolic about this, right? I mean, you're reaching towards the heavens. Lots of people came to see him and talk to him. Pilgrims, pilgrimaged to see Simeon and ask him questions. He's very popular, widely imitated. Uh, He was the father of the pillar-dwelling monks. And There would be more. He offered spiritual counseling. He prophesied. He healed people. He was a judge who uh, decided cases of law and justice. He carried on a prolific correspondence. Uh, You can think about what it would be like to live up there and work up there. And he handed things down in little baskets and they brought things up to him. He didn't come down. He died up there. And I'm not making this up. I'm not being flippant about this. I'm being respectful. The man holds the Guinness Book of World's record record for pole sitting. I'm serious. You can look it up. It's in the book. I don't have to make stuff up. This is history. But, you know, today, people would try to rescue him. Get him down. Poor man. Uh, but, but he was trying to live the Christian life in the way that he believed that he was called to do so. They actually made a movie about him. A movie. It's a little slow. The movie is a little slow. Um, you know, it's just <clears throat> it was kind of a low-budget thing. Um, and by the way, I want you to know that that over over time, they they actually built a church around the pillar where he had lived. And if you look in the picture on the screen here, you can see there's a, this little, this is the, the bottom of the pedestal down here, right in the center of the stage. And there's kind of this, I don't know, a lumpy, egg like, egg shaped stone on top of the base. And that's, at least until the year 2016, that was what was left of the pillar. Just that, you know, everybody needs to have a little chip souvenir, a relic from the pillar. It was that way until 2016, until, well, you know, there's a war over there in Syria and uh, Russians, <clears throat> the Russians sent a missile into the thing and it, it was a direct hit, just to a, few, a couple feet to the right here of the pillar. That's all that's left of it today. The Soviet, the Russians are very thorough in their work and that's all that's left of it, uh, which is kind of sad. But nevertheless, that was in 2016. One thing that I want to mention about the, the motives of these monks, especially the early ones, Anthony in particular, is the, their commitment to the scriptures. These men are, are not just... You know, most, I, I would expect most of us have not chosen to live the monastic life. I don't see any monks in here this morning or people that look like monks. But uh, this is the way that they sought to live the Christian life and to follow the teachings of the scriptures. They, they believed what the scriptures taught and they lived in accordance with what they believed the scriptures taught. But the monks were really reacting against something that was happening in the church by the second by the third century the monks were reacting against the growing tendency in the church to live a life in the world and as the church would grow and spread and become more important in society and especially after christianity would become a tolerated religion within the empire the uh, church would take a larger place in society The leaders in the church would become more important. In some cases, the church, people in the church began to live the life of earthly authority. Sometimes the bishops uh, started to live like secular authorities, secular leaders, like the, the government officials. In some cases, people in the church began to prefer all kinds of worldly things. For example, power and wealth and prestige. And monasticism, or the monastic life, in some ways was a response against that. It reflected the church's rising authority and success in the world. And so the, the character of these early monks was one where they were trying to oppose what they saw happening in the church. And so they live lives of self-denial. And isolation, privation, austerity, asceticism, kind of a living martyrdom, a living witness to Christ. So in some ways, it was a reaction against the culture in which they were living. Now, the, the danger of the monks uh, thinking that they were above everyone else was, was very quickly apparent. And people thought, oh, you... You think you're so good, you're so holy by living out there in a cave in the desert. Well, so there was some conflict there. But some of what they did was considered by everybody to be central to the Christian life. A life of self-sacrifice, a life of humility, a Christian discipline, prayer, study of the scriptures. And in this way, the monks would would find a place in the the Christian church for many centuries. And they kind of became... uh, Uh, the conscience of the Christian church in some ways. So for some, this life of self-deprivation will become a common way of life in the Christian church in the third century. And uh, we're going to hear a little bit more next time about life in the world, especially in the Roman empire and what some of the early Christians experienced. Now these monks usually lived to a ripe old age And lived in in peace and harmony by themselves. But we will hear of other Christians who gave a witness to their faith with a different end. And that's where we're going to start next time. We're going to begin to talk a little bit about uh, the Christian life and uh, how it was lived, but also uh, what became of some of the martyrs, the witnesses under the Roman persecution. I want to stop there for today. Does anybody have any questions about the early monks in the Christian church, the desert-dwelling monks? It's not an easy life. Please. How much of this was influenced by the Greek thought of the flesh, the evil, the spirit, the devil, the flesh, or that kind of Yeah, That's a very good question. The question is Uh, how much of what the monks did with kind of the the, the, um, self-discipline and and the ideas about the flesh being sinful and so forth, how much was that influenced by Greek philosophy and the worldview at the time. I I think that certainly that's there. It's part of the worldview, the culture in which they're living. It's, It's all over the Mediterranean world at the time. It kind of shapes the way that they think. But I also think that if you were to ask them they may say, well, you know, we know about that. But they really thought that they were living the way that Jesus taught them to live. So this, this idea about go sell all your possessions, give them to the poor and follow me. And don't take anything with you. Don't bother about a cloak or shoes or anything. Just go. That's what they were trying to do. So they would have nothing. And uh, usually these, the, the, I mentioned that Anthony had a rule for his monastic community to follow. It would be guidelines, the way to live. And usually that rule said you don't, you won't have any possessions, you own nothing. At, at best, the community owns things, uh, and if anybody asks you for something, you give it to them. So it's it's very non-material. Uh, but but you're right. This does fit pretty well with what's going on in the in the Greek world. And to be honest, there were all kinds of uh, monastic types from other religions. In some ways, the Gnostics, many of them led led ascetic lives or monastic type lives. So the Christian monks are not the only ones living this kind of a life. That's for sure. That's a good question. Thank you. Anything else about the early monks? Very good. Thank you very much for being here today. And I'll look forward to seeing you next week. Let's close with a blessing. A click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton St. Louis, the messenger of good news.